Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by LexisNexis. Because the law is everywhere, at the heart of our lives and our discussions, this series brought to you by LexisNexis and guests will cover current issues that impact us daily. I am joined today by Venetia Sukdeo, author of Mandatory Human Rights Due Diligence, From Legal Custom to Lawful Concern, published by LexisNexis Canada. Venetia currently works as a course instructor at Osgoode Hall Law School and in the Social Science Department at York University, teaching business associations and corporate governance and business law. Her research is located at the intersection between corporate law and labor and employment law. Venetia was called to the Ontario Bar in 2007 after completing her articles with a union-side labor law firm and in-house at a union. She completed her doctorate at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto, Ontario. Venetia received her LLM from Osgoode, LLB from Queen's University, and her Bachelor of Arts from York University, where she majored in political science. Venetia is the sole author of four books and has also written journal articles and book chapters on a range of topics within both corporate law and labor and employment law. Welcome, Venetia, and thank you for joining me today as we celebrate International Women's Day this March. Thank you for inviting me. I'd like to start off by asking you, who inspired you to get into the legal profession and why? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I was a political science major in undergrad. So reading the work of many scholars such as Catherine McKinnon, These are people who use their legal knowledge to help others and to really help explain the world, right? Using the law to explain how society works and the rules that exist within society. Also, my sister was a lawyer and she encouraged me to go to law school. So that's kind of what um, started my path in the law. And then eventually I went on to accumulate an LLM and a doctorate in law as well. Yeah. That's funny, keeping it in the family. So would you say you currently have any women that are leaders or mentors? Are there any specific women that inspired you and why? I'm fortunate that when I think back on this, um, I've had many scholars within like uh, academe as well as lawyers in the world of practice who have helped me and who have supported me, provided guidance in many different kind of uh, formulations of that. So my first job as a research assistant in the summer between when I finished my BA and I was about to start law school, so that first job as an RA was with a female professor um, at the Center for Feminist Research at York University. So that was someone, again, who helped early on in that um, what would become my path of of being, uh, you know, teaching at law schools, teaching in undergraduate programs. She's kind of the one who helped me on that path. And then I was uh, fortunate enough it, during my time at Queen's Law School, where I did my LLB, um, Professor Anita Annan taught me business association. She's now our, uh, she's now a cabinet minister in the Trudeau government. So I was lucky to have such strong uh, female models early on. And then during the course of my LLM, Poonampuri at Osgoode Hall Law School um, uh, taught me, and I was also a research assistant early on for Poonam, who then became the supervisor for my doctorate. So these are all very strong women who are in the legal field who have, as I said, helped to just encourage and support and provide that guidance in a way that was very uh, helpful, especially early on, right, when you're still trying to navigate everything for yourself. So currently, as a 
professor, you are a mentor for not only your students, but other women in the legal industry. So what would you say is the most important thing you advise them about? Yeah, I, I do provide a lot of mentoring for for uh, both my current and former students, mostly informally providing that guidance and support um, that I also received. And um, things like, you know, writing reference letters, making introductions uh, within both academe and outside of, uh, fielding calls as a reference, you know, these are kind of what um, I've been doing in that role of informal mentoring. And so the advice I would give to women is that networking is just so important, not just in this matter that or this manner that we think of it as kind of schmoozing. And um, I think it has a bad connotation, but it can be done in a way that is effective because you can meet new people, um, both if you're aspiring to be an academic, a scholar, uh, a practicing lawyer, there are just so many different opportunities to meet those new people whose career paths you would like to, uh, you know, use as a guide for your own. And it helps you to not just meet those new people, but to learn from them, right? Just, and again, this networking has bad connotations, but I guess we can kind of reformulate it as not networking, but reaching out and meeting new people, whatever kind of umbrella term that falls under. To me, that is the most important aspect because you never know whose work is going to really speak to you and whose research is going to um, kind of overlap with your own. Making those new connections is just the most important aspect because it helps you to figure out what you like and what you don't like about both scholarship, being a researcher, or in the practice of law, right? Speaking to people who practice in that area already and what they like or dislike about it. Just hearing from so many different voices, I think, is helpful in um, forming your own career path. So speaking of career path, your extensive career, both teaching and practicing, are there any mistakes you've made along the way? And if so, what did you learn from them? To me, the word mistake indicates something wrong, right? That something happened that needs to be corrected. And I, I'd rather think about this as life is a kind of, you know, includes setbacks, which can be overcome, right? A setback is different than a mistake. Um, and, and to me, the setbacks often are about delay, that things don't happen as quickly as you want them to happen. And so those delays, um, now I'm better at kind of working those in to think that, do I need a year to write a book? Do I need eight months to write a book? And to factor in those delays when I'm setting deadlines for myself and my students, right? To think, how much time do they actually need and how much of a buffer can I give? So to me, it's not about uh, making mistakes and fixing mistakes. It's about knowing that there might be delays or setbacks and trying to build those in when I'm setting deadlines and, and kind of setting my own work schedule. Uh, I have a pretty grueling writing schedule. I teach many classes. So it's about, again, setting in or setting um, setting aside that extra time, trying to build those delays into the system, I find, is what um, has kind of, in a way, hindered, um, I guess, my career from advancing as quickly as it could, just thinking about the fact that deadlines sometimes need to be extended. Do you have any advice for young women who are thinking about becoming a lawyer? 
Yeah, I encourage everyone who has an interest uh, to go to law school to do so. Um, a law degree opens so many doors and opportunities. So not just, you know, thinking about someone who wants to get a law degree so they can get called to the bar and practice, but you know, you never know where your career is going to take you. So we can think about all the different opportunities that a law degree would help, that we know a lot of CEOs of companies have law degrees and are lawyers, um, politicians. So to me, I would really um, encourage anyone who's thinking about going to law school to do so. And again, going back to my point about networking, um, I, I did this myself when I was a first year law student to seek out upper year law students and ask for their advice that what courses do they like? Um, you know, who would they suggest is a, a good professor? Um, things like that, just to kind of get as many voices giving you input as possible and then deciding for yourself what works or what doesn't. And so I would encourage anyone who wants to go to law school to do so, at least to start that application process. And then once you get those offers coming in, that's when you really have to decide um, if you want to go and where you want to go. And then once you start law school to think about navigating that path and figuring out, as I said, talking to as many people, both your um, your, your fellow first year students, upper year students, your professors, that asking for as much feedback and advice as you can and, and sorting it out ultimately for yourself. Yeah. That's some good advice. Thank you. So let's talk a bit more about uh, all the books you've written. You've written four, two of which are with LexisNexis, the first one being Business Ethics and Legal Ethics. And then most recently, you wrote a book on mandatory human rights due diligence. So I'd like to know a bit more about what inspired you to write this book. Yeah, as, as you said, this is my second book with LexisNexis. And um, what really, I guess, got me thinking about even pitching this book what to think of, I was thinking about how can this be pitched and written in a manner that appealed not only to academics and scholars, but to think about this wider audience for my work, practicing lawyers, students, both law students and in other disciplines as well. So this is really the perfect fit, right, to, to stick with LexisNexis. And um, my earlier books focused on corporate social responsibility and um, in particular codes of conduct. So thinking about these soft law mechanisms that we can use in relation to the corporation, not just hard law on the books and legally binding contracts and legislation, but to think about all these different layers of governance that we could kind of apply to individual corporations and in particular transnational corporations, those that are um, huge corporations like Nike and Reebok that have these supply chains that go all over the world. How can we hold them accountable when they're operating on foreign soil? So this difference between a home nation and a host nation, how do we hold the corporation accountable on foreign soil? How can we turn what was once a soft law tool, like a code of conduct, into a hard law tool, right? And it's called often this um, hardening of soft law, this movement from what was voluntary into what is mandatory. So we look at the work of John Ruggie, who worked at the United Nations, and his um, framework talking about the different obligations of the nation state versus the corporation versus um, having an access to a remedy and the importance of these three pillars operating together. And so this encouraged me and, and um, got me thinking about 
legislation that exists in places like Norway and Germany that is about focuses on mandatory human rights due diligence, saying that a corporation that is headquartered in Germany or Norway has obligations along their supply chains. It can't simply say that because a factory exists in Honduras or Thailand or Botswana, wherever in the world, and they are just contracting with that company and they're able to avoid liability saying that they don't know what happens ultimately at that end factory mandatory human rights due diligence is forcing corporations to be accountable along their entire supply chain so this is just to me that, that the next step right in corporate social responsibility to move from what was voluntary to what is now mandatory and binding so just this increase of corporate accountability i think is important when we think about the world as you know working in coordination and how do we make sure that uh, nation states are treated the same uh, if you are a host nation versus a home nation right corporations shouldn't be allowed to get away with uh, behavior on foreign soil that they wouldn't be allowed to get away with on home soil so i have to ask do you have any thoughts for what your next book could be or would be I actually am working on another book. Um, my next project is looking at how climate change relates to workers' rights, how we can actually try to change the law to make sure that workers in extreme weather conditions have the proper protection. So thinking about extreme heat and extreme cold, how can we actually change the law um, and increase regulation so that workers have appropriate breaks for both hydration so they can get water, um, so they can have a rest and things like that, looking at how climate change and workers' rights actually uh, intersect. That's very exciting. I'm actually looking forward to reading that. Do you have any idea when it's planning to come out? Uh, hopefully next year is the plan currently. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. Actually, that's quite soon. Yeah, that's the plan right now. I'll, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> So that's actually all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank you, Venetia, so much for joining us and speaking about your legal career as we celebrate International Women's Day this March. Do you have any closing words for the listeners? No, just thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure chatting with you about my work and um, the scholars who have helped to uh, influence my, my current work and ongoing work. Thank you.